HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Available seasonally at select Whole Foods markets. Learn more at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You're listening to a special edition of The Farm Report from Heritage Radio Network and the National Young Farmers Coalition. I'm your host, Lee Ullman, with my co-host, Alita Kelly. We work with a coalition of tens of thousands of farmers and advocates across the country calling for land justice, climate action, and a more equitable future for agriculture. On this special series, we're digging into the Farm Bill, an incredibly powerful, multi-billion dollar package of legislation. It influences what we eat, and so much more. Over the course of the series, we'll be talking to farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. We'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another Farm Bill gets made. We hope these stories from the front lines of our food system inspire you. Join us to shift power and change policy to support the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. In 2022, young farmers conducted a survey of over 10,000 farmers across the country. It showed that land access is the number one challenge for farmers. And those that aren't able to secure land usually just end up leaving farming altogether. Opportunities for new farmers to acquire land are disappearing. Across the country, farmland is being lost to development, and we're losing more than 2,000 acres per day. And the average age of farmers in the U.S. is nearly 60. As older farmers retire over the next 20 years, nearly half of U.S. farmland is expected to change hands. So how do we make sure this land isn't just sold to the highest bidder? We asked Young Farmers Policy Director Vanessa Garcia-Polanco to unpack some of the barriers to land that our next generation of farmers are up against. So I just kind of want to ask for you to set the stage and reiterate why land access is one of the big challenges young farmers face and maybe what are some of the main factors contributing to it? Yeah, definitely. So we know um, that land is foundational. Land is the base of where you can farm. 
So in also in order to have a good business plan, in order for you to be able to implement conservation practices, you need to have secure land access. Where you buy land determines a lot of your market. So it's also about finding land in the places that, that have market access. And also it's the land that, that you want to farm and the way you want to farm and the communities you want to farm. And when we did more specific policy research in, in the national survey in 2022, we heard that land access was continuous, the, the number one challenge that our farmers are struggling with. And that's for a variety of reasons, mostly because the market got extremely more competitive during the pandemic. And we just saw more corporations and hedge funds and just non-farmers buying farmland all across the country. So all those things were happening at a time that markets were really changing for young and beginning farmers. So that's a lot of the symptoms that we are seeing of why this, um, there's so much land insecurity for the next for this generation. And also other compounding factors that I love talking about. Uh, a lot of our farmers are have student debt. If you have student debt, you're less likely to be able to get a loan uh, to buy farmland. A lot of our farmers are young parents. Childcare is really expensive. Um, and also, again, the safety nets. If you have not been able to uh, access other safety nets that are available to you at USDA, you have less capital access overall um, to be able to compete with, in, with some of these other non-farm uh, landowners who are coming from the city or coming from other places or just are corporations and hedge funds and they're uh, buying the land in three days with a cash offer and you have to file paperwork to apply for a loan and you have to wait three or five weeks to hear back if you even qualify for that loan. So again, the market is not conducive and the infrastructure is not conducive right now for young farmers to compete and buy in farmland. And how do these issues affect um, beginning and, and particularly BIPOC farmers in particular? Definitely in the, in the sense that we know that BIPOC borrowers have higher student debt ratios. Uh, and we know, when, especially when things like related to access to USDA programs like capital, we know they're less likely to have access to those, to those USDA programs uh, because of historic discrimination, no access, bad customer service, and just overall not understanding um, the operations that we want to run as young, as young uh, farmers. And, uh, BIPOC farmers, especially like we focus more in operations that are diverse, who are more uh, hunger relieving or community driven solutions. And for when you have to show a business plan, when to get a loan, a lot of people maybe this this is not a business plan, this is a nonprofit. Farming in a different way. Um, many of these business analysts, when you go for a loan, they 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 may not understand, they may not have the same value alignment, so they may not see you as a viable candidate for a loan. Okay, and then are there ways in which the current farm bill structure contributes to some of these land access challenges? Uh, I will say that it contributes by not having any farm bill program that focuses on land access. So right now we really are trying to create a new program authorized in the farm bill and funded through the farm bill that will allow for community-based organizations to put farmers on the land through diverse mechanisms because land access and land issues are so diverse across the country and they vary by county, by city, by state. And that's what we are focusing on this um, 
on this proposal, the um, increasing land access marketing and capital of, of security ad uh, as, a, as a venue to allow for that to happen in the farm bill. Yeah, that's a great and perfect segue to talking about more about the 1 million acres for the future campaign and our specific marker bills, including mm-hmm. like the LCM, um, which was sort of the foundation for Lasso and, you know, this idea of equitable land access and, and putting that actually in the farm bill um, funding for that. So could you talk a little bit more about why that's established and how that campaign has been uh, moving forward? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I really always like to start with the campaign inception because I think it was really visionary from our team. And we were like, why don't we train farmers so they can tell their stories uh, and we can advocate for changes that will lead to millions of dollars in investment online access. So, and that's how the One Million Acres campaign came about. Since launching the One Million Acres for the Future campaign in 2021, the Young Farmers team has been working with a coalition of partners to secure a historic investment in equitable land access in the next Farm Bill. As part of this work, farmers in our Land Advocacy Fellowship Program have been leading the conversation on land policy change in D.C. They've been meeting with members of Congress to share their needs, challenges, and ideas for the future of agriculture. Having farmers tell their stories is what led the USDA to use Inflation Reduction Act funding to create the Increasing Land Capital and Market Access Program in 2022. It's a mouthful, so we call it LCM for short. This was a pilot program that provided $300 million in federal funding to support community-led land access projects benefiting young and BIPOC farmers. But the pilot program was massively oversubscribed, meaning that many people just didn't even get funding. Plus, the funding was a one-time deal, which is one of the reasons why we're advocating for more permanent funding in the Farm Bill through the Increasing Land Access Security and Opportunities Act, or LASSO for short. Just to remind everyone, marker bills are used to show collective interest in an idea and build momentum around a proposed policy. And so the goal is to get as many members of Congress as possible to support your marker bill in the hopes that we'll get included in the final version of the Farm Bill. I asked Vanessa to talk about this process and what it's like to get members of Congress to support a marker bill. I just want to remind everyone to, uh, this far, this money goes to farmers, but it, it goes to a community-based organization. So many of farmers have nonprofits, and this tells you their testimony that they are not doing this for profit. They are doing this to serve their communities, uh, to continue uh, agrarian traditions of farming, and just to and feed our communities and fight climate change. So... I think that's always one of my favorite fun facts that so many farmers have nonprofits and we need to remember that farming is public service. Yes, yes, supporting this cooperative farming model is mm-hmm. um, is really important. Um, so we've got these these marker bills, we're in these discussions and what are can you just sort of outline some of the challenges of introducing a marker bill like this? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I will always remember the day the congressional office emailed me being like, Yeah, we're gonna do this. And it was like February 9th. And it was just like <laughs> for me that day is bigger than the day that the bill was introduced because it takes so much conversation, it takes so much talking, it takes so much education to a member of Congress to be for them to be like, Yes, I'm gonna work with you, your constituents, your members to introduce a bill. Um 
And I believe in this and I'm going to fight for this. So I think it's just the wildest right to get a bill introduced so much back and forward. Uh, it's a lot of co-writing. It's a lot of feedback. It's, it's so many conversations about what actually this project or proposal will do. It's always grounded in what farmers need and want. Uh, so I think for us, it was a really beautiful a lot of it's, it's it's a lot of education and relationship building uh, that only happens and is possible if your farmers are telling their stories to the members of Congress. So so far right now we have two co-sponsors in the Senate version of the Lasso Bill, and last time I checked we have fourteen in the House. Since we spoke to Vanessa, we now have three co-sponsors in the Senate and twenty in the House. The Farm Bill extension gives us more time to get more members of Congress to sponsor the Lasso Marker Bill. It shows you that the more meetings, the more education, the more stories we tell our members of Congress, they will hear about these issues and they will literally go, what is a legislative proposal there that I can fight for, that I can that I can fight for you on this. And sometimes it's, it's something really funny. We have sometimes members of Congress who may not even be in the agricultural committee or they may not be experts in agriculture, but they hear from our farmers so much and they have developed really intimate relationships with our farmers that they feel that reciprocity and that duty to them. That sometimes I have I have some congressional offices that are coming to me. It's like, what, what can we work together on? What can, what can I do? Uh, and that's beautiful. I love when that happens because that means that member of Congress is being receptive and is doing their job. So, you know, are you mostly getting positive feedback when you're walking into these offices? Like what was um, fly-in? How did that feel for you when you were there with many of our other farmers that, you know, came from all over across the country and just had so many meetings and were right there telling their stories? How were Congress people reacting yeah, I think flying is just a marathon. It's like it's like three days of running around DC, your feet hurt. Um I think it's really beautiful because um I as like the DC representative of a lot of the young farmer voices, uh, you know, they can ignore me. A lot of my ninety percent of my job is people ignore my emails and that's fine. I just show up to their offices and bother them. Um but they can only know when a farmer from their district or state is telling their story to their faces in their office. So I think it just uh, really humanizes a lot of the education that the rest of the DC policy team does during the entire year when those farmers are not in DC. And it really pushes them out of their comfort zone to be like, okay, I need to be visiting more farms, or I need to be learning more about this. And that's all we want. Use your your duties and powers and responsibility as a member of Congress to make change. And the way you make change is introducing a marker bill and fighting for it to be included in the farm bill. So I think we just really want to remind folks out there who are listening to this, who has struggled with land access, especially in the young farmers. I feel like every time we hear someone lost land or lost their farm or stop farming, it's like a grief moment. Uh, and we all hold that and feel that really tight and closely into our hearts. But I want I want you to tell that story to the people who, by by law, by responsibility and right, have the duty to change those things for you. So I just want everyone to be brave and share their stories, uh, so they can be heard and seen uh, by their members of Congress and elected officials in DC and back home. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Vanessa. I really appreciate you talking to us, and thanks for all your work. 
We'll be right back after a quick break. Hearst Ranch, in collaboration with Whole Foods Market, is proud to be the presenting sponsor of The Farm Report, a special HRN series in collaboration with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Tune in each week to hear from farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. They'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another farm bill gets made. Join the coalition to shift power and change policy for the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. So how does all of this advocacy work actually make a difference? Tyran Heru-Lewis runs Heru Urban Farming in St. Louis, Missouri. His project was one of 50 across the country to receive funding from the LCM program. That's the pilot program we were talking about with Vanessa, which was the first of its kind to direct federal funds towards increased land access for underserved farmers. How about we get started with just telling us about how you got started in farming? Okay, so I'm a farmer here in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, it's crazy because I never wanted to be a farmer initially. Uh, I am a fifth generational farmer. Uh, my family, a uh, long history of farmers in my family down in Paris, Texas, in Lamar County. Um, I started off as a PE teacher and a health teacher. And then I uh, went to corporate America. Um, and then I discovered farming. It's crazy because uh, it actually found me. Um, so I was vegan at the time in 2017. Um, not vegan anymore because I miss chicken so much. But... Um, <laughs> So uh, it, I realized that I had a problem. So I wanted to get some fresh produce and, and you know, and uh, so a little background in Missouri, over 850,000 people in the St. Louis metro area don't have sustainable, healthy produce within a half mile of their community. So that's walking distance. Um, so when I was in search for some food, uh, you know, it's a lot of gas stations and family dollars and Dollar Generals. Uh, they got a lot of processed food and things of that nature. Then I went to Midtown, uh, went there, it's a little better. So I said, okay, let me turn this to a field trip. So I went out to the suburbs in um, an area called Clayton. Man, I could go in there, eyes closed, pick up something. It's good. They had samples. Like, you don't even got samples in the hood. So we had samples. So then I went further out with the West County. And that's like, I called it the super suburbs. Man, I had people cooking live sushi and winery and all this fancy stuff. So I said, you know what? Let me do something about it. So I just started growing food in my backyard. Um, and then I had a vision. I was a vacant lot across the street from my house. I found out about a, a garden lease, $5 for five years, started doing that, started off with three raised beds. And then, um, yeah, and I just, long story short, I started off with $10 square feet. Now I'm, uh, you know, I got a little bit under three acres and I got some workers coming <laughs> in the near future uh, from the grant I received. We do CSAs. Every five we sell, we donate to a family in need. Uh, we sell to uh, a lot of local chefs around town. Uh, local grocery stores, uh, Operation Food Search, uh, this Metro bus that goes around with um, it's like a mobile farmers market, and um, yeah, and we do um, different uh, programs for the for the schools. I got agriculture curriculum, so we're in, we're in the schools. Uh, we teach in the curriculum, uh, a lot of field trips, and a lot of more positive things to come in the future. 
So, yeah. Incredible, incredible work. So you had mentioned that you got started with five years for $5 yes. doing community gardening, yes. essentially. Um, so that's how you, you got started. And can you tell us about how you transitioned from that space to where you're at today in the process? So I kind of want to go reverse a little bit. So that program is no longer available. So we had a program here in St. Louis called LRA. So uh, LRA um, means for um, um, Land Reutilization Authority. So it was a program. So you can lease a lot, a vacant lot for $5 for five years as long as you grow food. That was awesome, right? Um, so just of earlier this year in February, it stopped. That because gentrification is here, and uh, that's all for new development now, and you got to have a business or something like that to pull that property. A lot of people lost their land, but I transitioned to where I'm at now. I'm blessed, to be honest with you. Uh, I came up a different way than your traditional farmers. Uh, so St. Louis is good on entrepreneurship. We have a lot of accelerators here. Um, I was the only farmer in these accelerators. So that was a blessing in the sky for me, even though it seemed like a farmer shouldn't be in these spaces. A lot of, it was a lot of tech going on and, you know, and food, stuff like that. But it taught me, I guess, to get myself out there. And it taught me the behind-the-scenes stuff. And, and then I acquired certain skills that your, um, I guess, your average farmer wouldn't, wouldn't receive, but not going, because they do a traditional route. So that was cool. And a lot of people started recognizing, started giving me monies and stuff like that. And I just saw the need that COVID happened in, 20, in 2020. Uh, I kind of got laid off from my, my, my gym job. And then um, everybody started getting health conscious and started being more. So that's kind of like, I came at the right right at the right time, really. And it just catapulted me into, into these spaces. And uh, I really appreciated that. Yeah. What about um, any sort of USDA programs that you've been involved with? Can you tell us oh, yeah. about land capital market access grant program, things like that? Yes, I can. I am a, I am a, a aggressive grant writer, I guess. Uh, and it's crazy because I guess I had to get inspired to do that as well. Because at first I was like, I don't know how to write grants. Uh, man, uh, I'm trying to pay somebody. And they was just like, charging too much. So uh, my significant other was like, well, uh, you got a master's degree. I think you're pretty smart. You might as well write it yourself. And I did it myself. The first one I wrote, I got. So that was cool. And that was like 10 grants ago. So then I came across the Land Capital Market Access Grant. Now, it was crazy how this came about because when I saw the grant, and this is all the stuff that we've been working for, right? So I seen the grant, and it was two weeks out. And I was like, man, I got two weeks to do this grant. Oh, man, I don't know. So a lot of people was like, man, that's not enough time. Man, man, but my ancestors told me, go get it. So um, we got a program here called MoCap. And MoCap is, um, they, they help nonprofits uh, uh, write grants for free. So we, it was crunch time, so I helped these two um, young ladies to write the grant, but I did get help, and we just hit the ground. You know, we had two weeks, so we had to get everything. We had to get pushed it through, and it's crazy because I, I'm being humble about it, but I knew I was going to get it. I just knew, it. and yeah, I got it. I'm getting excited. So I got so much stuff going my So the land I'm, I'm under contract for, which they're so – I'm so thankful they're giving me extensions because we don't know when the funds coming out. But I got a 214-acre property that's in that's in DeSoto, Missouri, which is an hour away. 
Um, we got four stock pods, uh, fully, you know, with bass, crappie, bluegill, um, 107 acres of woods, uh, and 107 uh, farmland. Um, man, the neighbors are cool. Uh, so what my, what my proposal was, which I'm so excited about, I'm going to have a farming incubator. Uh-huh. So I'm going to have Love 10 it. urban growers that need more space um, to come out to the farm. Um, if you've got experience, you can form an acre. If you don't have experience, you get a fourth of an acre, somewhere in between there, right? Between a fourth and an um, acre. Um, so this is going to be an intense training. Like, it's going to be dope. Like, we're going to not even just teach you. Of course, we'll teach you farming and all that good stuff. But we're going to teach you uh, um, how to start your LLC, how to start a nonprofit, how to, how to find distributors, like, like the business side, like all the stuff I was taught, right? Also, we're going to get into, um, this have enough money for me to get um, some goats, sheep and chickens. I won't get all that in the first year because I'm, I'm still going to take my time and do it the right way. I'm only going to farm on like five to ten acres the first year. And then I'm going to start get, building my infrastructure and all this good stuff. I'm working with a lot of small businesses and, and uh, minorities, too, for construction of, of my wash pack station, uh, all the development we need to farm the whales. Also, I'm going to give away 10% of everything I grow every month. And I'm going to do a different type of CSA. I'm going to do a CSA by zip code for these underserved uh, mm. communities. And they come to a central location. Now people give out food and boxes. I'm going to give out fresh food like that and give it out. And I also have prepared meals as well. I'm going to hook up with North Shore Food Hub. And they make prepared meals from um, growers here locally. So that'd be a cool option. I'm going to expand my outreach to schools. So I'm going to have, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have five, like, Schools I'm really gonna key in on, and you know, get in there and do my agricultural uh, curriculum with them, and set them up gardens at their schools and stuff like that. I got I'm gonna have enough money to hire uh, four paid staff, so my little cousin be happy now. I don't have to give him fifty dollars a day anymore, so, so that's cool. Um, and I got enough to, um, to get three contract workers as well. Uh, man, it's probably stuff I'm leaving out, man. But incredible, it's going down though. It's going down. Super exciting. Yeah, so we've been talking about the the Lasso Marker Bill, Increasing Land Access Security and Opportunities Act. And that included in that marker bill um, is the LCM program and substantiating that and securing that in the next farm bill. And so it's it's really cool to hear stories like yours um, through LCM, Land Capital Market, access program and the, the potential of it, because it's not just impacting your farm, you are leveraging this for the community. Um, yes. So it's really admirable. Yeah, it's clear how it's sort of made an impact. But what's also really interesting is, you know, I hear you talking about how you've really grown as an, as an advocate, you know, you're part of our, our land fellowship, and now you're sort of training other farmers on how to be engaged in this advocacy work. Can you talk a little bit more about what it's like to actually, you know, be a farmer advocate and meet with your representatives and, and how those exchanges, what those exchanges look like? Yeah, um, first of all, it's very empowering. Um, man, so it's crazy. Uh, like I said, I never thought about doing this, but it's really meaningful. You know, if everyone come together and go to the, to the Capitol or to your, to your state offices or, or whatever, and you come with those numbers and really uh, get to the points and the topics you want to talk about, they really are open to listening. For the most part, 
I think in my in my mind, you see a lot of if you're gonna see bipartisanism, it's gonna be in agriculture. Your voice can be heard. Um, if you're in this space, they don't really know what we see and what we know, what we do. So I think it's really important for us uh, to be in these spaces and go and uh, communicate with them for sure. If you could talk directly right now to your member of Congress, what one thing, pick one thing that you'd ask them to include in the 2023 Farm Bill? Mm, okay. All right. So my grant was for, so I had to do, collab, I put it in my nonprofit name, right? And I had, I had to collab with some people. I would like them to add a land access grant or opportunity in this bill for individuals as well. Because everybody don't have a nonprofit. So I want individuals to have an opportunity to have land capital. Now, I know this is new. It's a pilot thing. But I wish it was more smooth. For example, uh, we just wait. Uh, we don't know the next steps. We don't know when the funds get dispersed. And that's kind of like, now when it come, it come. I, I haven't been at it. So that's how I think. But at the same time, we crop planting. We got a lot of uh, things and, you know, future contracts we want to work on, but we don't know when we're going to get this, get the funds. And we don't know, uh, you know, because if I knew, for example, and I was trying to get it for the year out so I can get our cover crops down, all that stuff ready to prepare for the spring. So I, depending on when these funds are coming, I might have to take uh, a season or two off of wow. next year just to get everything together um, uh. because I got a space now that I want to get on my new space. So I'll be, I'll be preparing that land. So I might have to take the whole spring season off, which I'm not too upset about. But uh, <laughs> I might have to take that season off. Uh, and I uh, hope it's not the whole year. It depends on how long they take. So uh, so that's one thing. I, I, I don't know if that's me being, uh, I don't know. No, I, that's that's echoed um, across other farmers. Okay. Uh, no, stories too. Yeah, yeah but, that's true. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, so that's the issue there. Just the transparency. I mean, see your email, you know, once a month. I mean, you reach out to them, they respond back, but no one knows anything. So we all just, you know, sit back trying to figure out what's the next move. Like I said, when it comes, it comes. I'm happy. I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't been at it, so I'm not worried about that much. But it is, it's a little... Um, I don't know. It is a little headache to be trying to figure out things on our end. Just how we gonna collab and how we gonna set up certain things that I need to know, kind of. You know, absolutely. Because you're going from three acres to two hundred, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of stuff we gotta do and construction and all that. So that's my headache right now. But I say I'm not being too much of a you know too much. I say I am still thankful at the same time. At the same time, I still do need to know something. So yeah. Still working out the kinks, but on the positive, these, you know, this type of legislation, I think, is the first time that yes. equitable land access has even been addressed in the farm yes. bill. And, mm-hmm. and so we're 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 inching forward because of yes. the work that you are doing, mm-hmm. because of farmer advocacy, um, and because of conversations like this. So we really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us. For sure. We have a lot to learn from Tyra. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking notes for sure. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. It's such a message of hope, um, especially like from the perspective of 
doing the doing that work in an urban setting and then where you're at now and you're going to be leveraging like this incubator farm to support all of these brand new farmers and creating that pathway for them you know i see you not just doing this for yourself and even you know your generational wealth but spreading that knowledge and awareness to so many other people who are going to impact the food system for years to come so thank you so much for doing that work Another farmer in our Land Advocacy Fellowship, Molly Rockman, runs a farm in Ferguson, Missouri, which is not far from Tyran's farm. Molly founded Earth Dance Organic Farm School, a nonprofit farm that trains the next generation of farmers and gardeners who otherwise wouldn't have access to land. She farms on a plot of land that was stewarded by organic farmers for many, many years. Here's her land story. My name is Molly Rockman. I am the founder of um, a nonprofit farm called Earth Dance Organic Farm School. And um, yeah, Earth Dance is a 14 acre oasis in the middle of a neighborhood in Ferguson, Missouri. And we exist to advance food justice. So that looks like a variety of things for us and one of them being that we are training the next generation of farmers and gardeners um, in this urban setting. And we do a lot of food access programs. So it is a working farm. We grow a huge diversity of, of produce items and we make those accessible to the community on a sliding scale. I do want to acknowledge that the people who originally stewarded this land were from either the Missouri, the Osage, or the Illini tribes. Um, sadly, we don't have a, a clear reference point of the timing of all of that, um, but we know that a lot of Indigenous people were moved through this land um, and spent time here. The story that we know more clearly is that the Miller family established it as a family farm in 1883. Um, so it makes it what some consider to be the oldest organic farm west of the Mississippi, because then the third generation, actually Al and his wife, Caroline, um, rather than going, quote unquote, the way of progress and using chemicals, swore them off and started practicing what they called biological or natural farming. And so it, this, this farm has a long history of feeding people really nutrient-dense um, fruits and vegetables directly into the community. So I was first introduced to this land when I was a teenager, my dad um, took me there just kind of on a father-daughter field trip because um, he thought I would like to see an organic vegetable farm. And um, it still to this day is remarkable to me that that one visit left such a strong impression that I carried even overseas to Fiji. And then when I was working for our family business, which was right down the street from this farm, I got reconnected to the land by going and shopping at the Ferguson Farmer's Market and meeting a gentleman there, John Wilkerson, who actually um, was leasing an acre of land from the woman, Caroline Miller. Her husband had passed away and she started leasing out the land um, by the acre. So I started out just volunteering with him um, on my lunch breaks or after work and just really started to see that there was so much potential of, of what could happen on this particular piece of ground. And I remember just searching online, like, how do you save a farm? 
because I just <laughs> knew that the woman Caroline was in her 80s, and when she passed on, the family was just going to sell it to the highest bidder. <clears throat> she didn't have any kids or anybody to keep it going. So um, I found out about land trust organizations and, and reached out to one in the area. They were mostly working on the Merrimack River watershed, um, but thankfully their leader saw um, urban farming as, as a good use of green space and supported our fledgling project by being a fiscal sponsor um, so that we could raise funds to actually run educational programs on it. So it just it just occurred to me that we needed to get as many people connected to this land as possible. I mean, that's exactly, you know, that that sort of context is so important. And, you know, one theme you touched on was, you know, you had this older farmer who was transitioning out of farming. And, you know, the fact that a lot of farmland is being sold to the highest bidder and, and going out of farming and how do we prevent that? And I know that's been part of um, your work as a land fellow. And I was just wondering if you could talk more about that and what are the tools as a farmer that that might exist out there that can help um, keep farmland, you know, with farmers? I think the Lasso Act is the most critical because it's talking about land access and, you know, the obstacle of accessing land is, is huge. And I just, I think whatever legislation is going to make it more feasible for more people to... Who, who don't necessarily have the means or who don't have the access already to do so, I think that's going to be the most critical. That's the kind of change that will last generations. I mean, getting, getting land into the hands of working farmers again is different from funding a program that could go away after a year. This is like, we're talking about the transfer of generational wealth. Um, so that, that's what's most important to me. Land is deeply intertwined with all aspects of farmer success, and it doesn't just impact farmers. Land access is critical to the health and well-being of our environment, economy, and marginalized communities. Without federal funding and investment in equitable land access, farmers like Tyran, Mali, and so many others we've interviewed won't be able to continue their work. All of the farmers who've shared their stories in this special edition of The Farm Report speak for a generation of young farmers who are reckoning with a long list of challenges. Climate chaos, food insecurity, land access, limited funding. We've really just scratched the surface when it comes to naming the challenges that young farmers face. But this next farm bill is a unique opportunity. It offers a real path towards creating solutions and a chance to invest in the people who grow our food. We need our government to support our next generation of young and BIPOC farmers. We need Congress to act. Call your representative, make sure your voice is heard, check out the show notes for ways you can join the conversation and get involved. The future of our food depends on it. The Farm Report is hosted by Lee Ullman and Alita Kelly. We're produced by Lee Ullman, Evan Flum, and H. Conley. We're edited by Hannah Beal and H. Conley. Audio engineering is by Armin Spengen and H. Conley. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. 
The National Young Farmers Coalition is shifting power and changing policy to more equitably resource our new generation of working farmers. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you stream your shows and share it with someone you think would like to join the Young Farmers Movement. You can follow us on Instagram at heritage underscore radio and at Young Farmers or take action at youngfarmers.org slash advocate. Consider becoming a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition today for only a dollar a year at youngfarmers.org slash join. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Subscribe to the Farm Report from Heritage Radio Network wherever you listen to podcasts.